Well, I'm on cloud nine a little bit this morning. Uh, I just got to spend an hour with a bunch of folks that are interspersed among you that are checking out our church family. And I got to talk about Jesus that whole hour. And I was just refreshing myself that I've, I've taught this class, that one class probably a hundred times, our starting point class. By the way, if you're our guest and you want to know what our church is about, our mission and vision, sign up for our next one. We'd love to have you there. But I, I just came out of there all pumped up. I'm teaching this same material that I've taught over and over again. And it just, I love Jesus. I just love him. He, his message never gets old. I'm also a little bit on cloud nine because I have a new future daughter sitting right over here next to me in worship. Shade, stand up and introduce Emma. Yep, this is the problem with being related to the preacher. All right, thank you guys. So, uh, so they just got engaged. Most of you know because the way we announce those things is, is, is on Facebook now, you know, and other places. So most of you knew that, but we're thrilled, Emma, to have you in our family and uh, grateful for that. And plus, Shade and Callie, both home from college this last week, so that's been awesome. And Jaken, he's still alive. And uh, we're, we're grateful. <laughs> that's right. So, uh, so as... As we were over there just taking the Lord's Supper together and just, it, it all just came, it just hit me. It hit me. Wow, thank you, God. Um, life is hard. Life is hard, and we know that, right, church? But we have Jesus, and uh, he gives us little signs of, of the kingdom breaking in now into the heart. But one day, it's all, it's all going to be perfected. And so I'm so grateful for that. So we're currently in this series entitled, This is the Way, in which we are following Jesus from beginning to end through the Gospel of Luke. We're spending over half the year looking at Jesus. The Hebrew author has this epic statement and instruction to his readers that says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So that's what we're doing this year. We're, we're fixing our eyes on Jesus right through Luke's account of his life and ministry and hoping that our faith is authored and perfected in ever-increasing measure. And so today we're going to go through Luke chapter 7. Now the next three chapters, 7 through 9, they make up a unit, a powerful section in Luke's story where he is proving and showing in the narrative, he's introducing in, in more power than ever that Jesus is a legit prophet of God. Okay, so for the Jews, this matters because they're already living in a continuing story from the Old Testament, their Bible. And, and there were in, in the Bible, their Bible, the Old Testament, some great prophets, including at the top of that heap is, is Elijah and Elisha. They were some of the greatest prophets of God. There's a whole bunch of others that get called major and minor prophets. They're all important. And so Luke has decided it's important for him to show that Jesus is in that same vein. He is the next chapter in the continuing story of God. God is coming and intervening and caring and helping his people once again. They've had 400 years of silence since the last prophet. So he is putting some juice into the idea that Jesus is legit. He's a prophet. But as you go through 7 through 9, we won't get this far, but spoiler alert, I'm telling you, he's trying to make, he's trying to build up over these next three weeks, that he's greater than a prophet. He's, he is a part of that story, but he's greater than, he's not just another prophet in the story. That it's better. So he won't get to, you'll notice today, there's going to be a dot, dot, dot at the end of this because the story keeps going. It's going to climax in chapter 9, this unit, 
in chapter 9. That's our Easter when we find out who he is. For now, Luke is writing this masterpiece, trying to get people to say, who is this? Okay, he's, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. Oh, but, but wait, there's more to him. He's more than a prophet. And so that's where, beginning with the end in mind of today, but Easter, invite your friends. We're going to find out who God is. He's going to proclaim who Jesus is, Luke is, through the narrative that he's telling, that he is indeed, through Peter, he's going to declare him to be the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited king and savior of the world. And we have another appearance of God showing up and speaking again in chapter 9. I'm preaching chapter 9. It is Easter, okay? But, you know, he's going to, and he says, this is my son, which he's repeating himself from his baptism. So that's what we're building up to so that you have context for what we're doing here. So you remember last week, chapter 6, was where Jesus chose his 12 apostles. That is this, this team that he's going to pull close to him to equip them for the work of continuing this movement when he's gone. So they get to walk around with him, learning to be like him, and are being equipped with the message and with spiritual power. And they're doing that by being with him. So he chooses them uh, to get that ministry team going. And the very next thing is he gives his inaugural, inaugural speech of his kingdom. We know it in Matthew as the Sermon on the Mount. Here it's called the Sermon on the Plains because they go to this flat place. But in both those stories, there's these just landmines of truth about what the kingdom is as compared to the culture. And what the kingdom is as compared to the, the, the religious culture. There's a gap between both. And make no mistake, we probably have a gap between our understanding and what Christ intends. We just, we get in mission drift all the time. So this story still has relevance to us today. So everything in chapters 1 through 6 kind of led up to that inaugural address, that pronouncement of what this kingdom is about. And everything after, starting in chapter 7, flows out of that. So let's get into it. Luke 7, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man, this centurion, he deserves to have you do this. Because he loves our nation, the Jewish nation, and has built our synagogue. He's built our church. So the centurion's not a Jew. He's a Roman soldier. But he loves the Jews in his care, evidently enough, to build their church building for them, their synagogue. And so Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. That one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this. He does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turned to the crowd following him and said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel, even among the Jews, even among the church people. Then the men went, who had been with him, returned to the house and found the servant well. So a centurion, we haven't, I don't think met a centurion yet, but a centurion is in the Roman military 
And remember, Rome is occupying tons of lands, including the Holy Land, the Middle East. And centurions were high-ranking officials in the military in each town. And they're basically the sheriff. They're supposed to keep the peace for the Roman Empire wherever they're put. So this guy was put in Capernaum with all these Jews in the middle of the Jewish uh, nation. And, and he is uh, high-ranking. He's in charge. He's under higher ranking, he says. I, he's not placed here by his own choice. He follows orders. But then he's in charge of every military man in the city. They follow his orders. So what he's saying here is, Jesus, I know how authority works. And I'm presuming it's how it works for you. You're the man. You say it, it happens. Like it is for me. And so I kind of get that. So two things I believe are being highlighted here in this little story that are important for us. One, in Luke's narrative, the authority of Jesus is being amped up a little more and it's being described about its nature for us in the way Luke tells it. This centurion imagines the kind, we know he has authority, but the centurion is imagining the kind of authority he has. It's military-like. It is absolute. He says it, and it's done. But not just in a system fabricated by humanity among people in a ranking file military, but even over sickness, right? Over things that no one else has realm or dominion over. And so the authority of Jesus is being highlighted once again. Luke's already done that a lot. And the kind of faith that we're supposed to have in Jesus, I think, is being spoken to here. Now, so faith isn't, we might lose it. We use faith in a lot of ways, and I'm not saying it's inappropriate in the ways we use it. But faith is not supposed to be just some fuzzy little thing that doesn't have an object. Faith is a weighty, meaningful thing that we utilize, and it makes a difference in our life because we have it. It makes a difference in how we interact with God because of what we believe. Faith believes in something, in someone and in something about that someone. And that's what is being highlighted here by Jesus. He believes in the absolute ability, competence, and authority of Jesus. He believes in it, even in impossible situations, like his servant that he loves that's going to die if he's not healed. So the role of faith must be pretty important, according to the narrative Luke has put together here, for him to make it. Because up to now, Jesus has been the one amazing everyone else. Right? Jesus is the one amazing all the people. This is our first time of a very few times where Jesus is amazed by someone. What was amazing? This man's faith. So much so that you turn around to those guys, you guys, you just called these guys. Right? You just called the apostles among this crowd. He says, uh, okay, I haven't even found this kind of faith among you guys who've been thinking about God for eons and have inherited it all your life. Even you Jews, you don't, not like this. Do you see this? There's something about this for us to see. There's something about it. The role of faith must be pretty important. I don't think Jesus was amazed at his faith because he had a faith that's supposed to be unusual. I think he was amazed because it was unusual. It was so rare. How's your faith? How solid is your faith? I remember a story. I can't remember the details of who the missionary was, but I remember an old story. I've probably told you about a decade ago or something, but there was a missionary in some far-off land where he had to learn the tribal language of this group, and he sat down once he knew enough to interpret the scriptures into their 
little tribal tongue. And he got to the word faith, and he could not find a, a word in the local tongue for the, for the word faith. And so, uh, until that is, one of the tribe's people came in, they'd been hunting or something, came in and, uh, and was exhausted and kind of sat down, pulled a chair up and sat down on the chair and used a word describing what he was doing in this chair to get the relief and the rest that he needed. And it was a word that means put your full weight on or upon. He was putting his full weight upon the chair. And the missionary said, that's it. That's the word. That's the local word for faith. Faith means to put the full weight of your needs, the full weight of your desires, of your desperation, of the impossible, to put your full weight on God. Do you do that? Or do you reserve a little because you just don't want to be disappointed? Or you reserve a little because you don't want to put God on the hook and be, you know, put, be, have a crisis of faith? You... I, I don't have all the solutions to that when you need it. But what I do know is scripture says you need to put your full weight on God, whatever transpires next. That that's the abundant life. That's what honors him. And that's what's going to get you through. I know it comes with complications, but not doing it does too. And according to Jesus, that's worse. This is what he wants to put our full. He wants us to put the full weight. How's your faith? How's your faith? So he goes on, verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. So we're not sick anymore, now it's a dead person. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So she's already lost her husband. And this is her last male relative, which was very significant for that time. And a large crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. I love that. And he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to walk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. And here's that agenda of Luke in this section. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So again, we're at the 10,000 foot view. I could do a sermon on each one of these stories. I could do multiple sermons on each one of these stories. But suffice it to say here in this part of the narrative... This is one of those miracles that would have reminded the Jews of Elijah, the great prophet Elijah, because Elijah has this famous epic story to the Jews of healing the son of a widow himself. And so they are, they're connecting this, and it's just getting deeper and deeper. The more they see, the more they experience of Jesus, they're having to really give in to their hope. You know, because it's hard. It's, it's easy to be skeptical about something you don't want to be true. It's really... The skepticism comes as something you want desperately to be true, but you're scared to believe it. You, 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 they really want to believe that the story's continuing. The next chapter of the Bible that we followed is happening. This is a prophet in the line of all the other prophets, and God has come and been among us. So that's what's happening here. And it advances the story a little bit in terms of his authority. Because previously, it was healing of a sickness. Now, it is his sovereignty, his authority over death he has say over that 
And so this all combines to keep crescendoing forward the story. All right, so now the scene changes briefly. And John the Baptist, remember him? We haven't talked about him for a while, I think since chapter 3. He, he's a important part of the story, but he comes back. Last we saw John, he was arrested by King Herod. Okay, Her- King Herod, who is King Herod? He's a Jew. And he has been given dominion over portions of the Holy Land by the Romans. So he's in collusion with the Romans. He's not a good Jew. He has swallowed fully the cultural's definite, the culture's definition of power. He's drunk on power, on riches, on wealth, you know, and, and all that. He is not a good Jew. He's totally indulgent, you know, in sin. He, he's done all that. And John called him out. And in chapter 3, he got put in jail. So he's been there for a long time, at least a year. So this is what happens. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Don't get mad when I'm repetitive. The Bible's repetitive. Okay. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind so he replied to the messengers go back and report to john what you've seen and heard the blind receive sight the lame walk those who have leprosy are cured the deaf hear the dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor and then he adds blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me it's an interesting little dynamic going between Jesus and John. So some scholars suggest, and it may well be right, that John might have been having a moment of doubt. Okay? You might too. You can't blame him. After you've been in prison, you've spoke truth to power, you, you, you're on a mission for God, and you get locked up in jail, and then you're just sitting there. And then you're sitting there some more. Then you're sitting there some more. You announced this kingdom. You anointed the king. You proclaimed him as king. You know what you think you know what that means. And so you're waiting for it to happen. Maybe he's doubting a little, you know. And so he sends these messengers to ask. That's on the surface what it looks like is happening. And if that's the case, then you read what happened next. And what happens next is he goes, messengers from John, come here, come here. Watch this. And he does some of his thing, kingdom bringing, healing, you know, cleansing evil spirits, and goes back. Okay, so now go back to him. Tell him what you've seen. Tell him what you've heard. Okay, all this stuff. And we would read that as encouragement for John, for John to go, okay, yes. And they'd have this little code between them that that's, that's, you know, that's what the kingdom is. And so, yes, I'm the real deal. You hang steady. You're not suffering for nothing. Right? We're in a bigger story here. But other scholars suggest that John might have actually been pushing Jesus to get on with it. Okay, that he might have been sending these messengers going, get on with it. You and I know what's going on. What, what are you waiting for? Establish the kingdom. Take over. And there might have been even a little edginess in John because he was in prison. I'm especially eager for that freedom for the prisoners part. Right? We know what's supposed to happen here. Now, this would presume we don't normally presume John didn't have an accurate picture of the kingdom of God. But there's nothing in scripture that suggests he might not have. Even the, even the most devout followers of Jesus, there was a gap between what they thought the kingdom was and what the kingdom actually was. And if that's the case, and this is what I think is going on here, and I'll tell you why here in a minute. 
If that's what's going on here, then you read this a little different. When he says the messengers say, it's this code for get going. What are you doing? What are you waiting for? I picture this like Billy Burr coming in and talking to me and saying, well, are you going to do what you said you're going to do or not, Brian? Or I got to wait for someone else to do it. I can just see Billy. That's what I think John, John might be doing here. So he then, he says, oh, John, John thinks the kingdom is one thing. I need to explain to him it's not that. So messengers, come here. Let me show you. And he does the healing and he said, see, now go back and tell him what you've seen and heard. He's redefining for John. The kingdom's not what you were picturing. It's this. It goes, it's not political. It's not territorial. It's not all that, John. This is it. It, it goes across borders. It's deeper. It's wider and can't be stopped by military force. And he's explaining that. Now, why? Why do I buy in on that? They're both solid Bible lessons. Okay, they're both solid Bible lessons, whichever way it is. It's this last little cryptic statement. He then sends them back and then turns and says, blessed is he who does not fall away on account of me. What's what's that mean? No, if it's the first way of, we're coming to you because of you. Okay, because of what you're demonstrating the kingdom is. That's why people are coming to you. They're not falling away from you. They're signing on to you. But he doesn't say that. He's warning Blessed are those who don't fall away on the economy. And, and a better interpretation of this, I looked at the different translations in, in the Greek, it's that isn't offended. Blessed are those who aren't offended on account of me. What I think he might be saying, these scholars have told me is, um, I know I'm not what you expected. And so it says another beatitude. Right? There's another beatitude. Blessed are you who do not fall away when I am not what you thought I was blessed are you who receive what I have for you because it's better but I know there's disappointment for you so I know John might have been expecting this messianic revolution but he's basically saying you know I'm the one I am the one but my kingdom is different so what that's what really tips me off here I got a gift it reminded me of this gift that I got years ago from one of the guys in my men's group it's a little doll of Jesus. It's one of those rubber ones that's bendable and posable. And he didn't even know how perfect this was for the problem that we have. We want to superimpose our expectation on Jesus. We want to bend him. We want to pose him. We want to shape him into what we think he should be. And if he's not that, I might be offended. I might fall away. Jesus knows this. He knows the power of our expectations on others, let alone on God. And so he's saying, look, blessed are you if you can weather that disappointment and engage with who I really am and who God really is and how he really works. We don't like it when he doesn't do things the way we expect he should do it. We don't like it. But he's saying, blessed are you if you can... If you can see the world the way God sees it, it's bigger than this world and you don't get stuck in this little temporary part and demand God do in this world the thing you think he should do or you're not following him. No, he says, blessed are you if you've learned that. So we're gonna skip reading what comes next. He has a little speech just for the sake of time. Instead, I'll just remind you that because of time, I can't cover everything in the whole book even though I'm trying my best. And I've encouraged you to uh, get this book, Luke for Everyone by N.T. Wright. 
I, you know, I use it in my study. I use a lot more than that because I know some of you are using this and I try to not be too redundant for you who are doing this. But I, anyone who's doing this, I guarantee you they are getting more out of this series by doing this on their own and letting God and you interact over scripture and the story when you study on your own than what you're getting here. I hope you're getting a lot here, but I really want to encourage you to do that because you don't want to miss some of the things that I'm skipping. What I will tell you is Jesus tells a little story about John now to his followers, and he says this, and this serves that narrative I told you that we're in here. He's elevating that he's a prophet, but more than a prophet. He says, I tell you that among women there has been no greater prophet born on this earth than John. Pause. The Jews know of some great prophets. Like, I don't know who they put at the top, but Elijah might be the greatest prophet in all of Israel's history. If he's at the top of their estimation, he's saying John should go on top of that. So he just way elevated John in their economy. And then he says, but the least little follower in the kingdom that I'm telling you about is greater than John. The least puniest little bitty follower in the kingdom is greater than John that I just elevated to the mountain of spiritual height. So now, we're not done. Think of how great then they're supposed to be thinking the king of the kingdom who the least of which in that whole kingdom is greater than John who's greater than all of the heroes of the faith. Luke is a master here, narrator, You know, and Jesus is an incredible teacher elevating who Jesus is, just how high you can put him in what's going on here. So that's what he says in that speech. So now we get to the last story. Oh, this is an incredible story. And it doesn't just serve as a culmination of this little chapter of what Luke's intent on showing that Jesus is a prophet and indeed greater than a prophet. He doesn't spill the beans on who he is yet. That's coming Two weeks, chapter 9, Easter, invite your friends, okay? But it serves as an awesome depiction. Just stand alone. This story is an awesome depiction of the incredible good news we carry around as Christ Church. I mean, this is awesome. It's all here. It's all here. Verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees, remember them? Here they are. They're back. One of them is. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. They didn't sit at their table. They reclined on the floor. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, because they're reclining on the floor and the feet are out, that's what makes sense of this. Because as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled both their debts. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman, but said to Simon, Do you see this woman? 
I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. The sinful woman you named, this kind of woman she is, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. But but he who's forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say to themselves, among themselves, here it is, who is this? Prophet, okay. But who is this who even forgives sins? See what Luke's doing? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Three, oh, this is such a good story. Three main characters in this story. Simon, the Pharisee, who've already shown themselves to be opposing Jesus. We don't know. Maybe Simon was a little more receptive to who this rabbi was than the other Pharisees who just, maybe he wanted to test him. Or maybe he's just like, he's kind of out there and this is attention getting and I'll be the first one to invite this crazy rabbi to my house. I'll be the one that gets a quote that solidifies that he's not legit. We, We don't know. We don't know. Simon is in here, the Pharisee, Jesus, who he's trying to either validate or discredit, maybe. And then this sinful woman. She's thought to be a prostitute because a similar story is in all the three other gospels, in Mark, Matthew, and John. And uh, it's a prostitute there. It doesn't say that here in Luke. It may be a totally different scene, but it's similar enough that whatever it is, it doesn't matter. The point is, there's a huge gap in Simon's estimation between him and this woman. And everyone knows it. Because he says he should know it. Jesus should know it. So she was uninvited, and she was there because when you invite people over for a, the privacy of what you have when you invite someone over to your house for dinner, that wasn't known in the first century. They met in this little courtyard in the middle of their house, and they would leave the gates open and windows open so that passersby could come by. And even though they're not invited to the feast, they get to listen, especially when it's a great teacher at a great man's house. We're, we want to listen in on the wisdom being talked about. And so this was, this was common. However, even though that was allowed, it would have been bold for this woman to show up. Okay, because of who she was in this city. And bolder still, actually, ridiculous and unheard of bold for her to interact with Jesus. Any guest, the way she was interacting with this guest, especially if she was a woman of the night. To do this, that just would have totally inappropriate. Just for example, no good standing woman would even let their hair down in public. Right? So even that was just totally inappropriate. There was nothing appropriate about this, culturally or religiously. And so it's expected. We don't blame Simon, really, based on those rules. That um, his conclusion, sure enough, he's no prophet. He's no prophet. Or he would know what kind of woman's touching him. But by knowing what Simon was thinking, right? Just knowing how he's... Look on his, I don't know how he knew. He knew. Some people say he pulled out the God card, but Jesus may just know how Pharisees are and saw it on his face. And so he answered him. But by doing that and then answering with this riddle that gets Simon to answer contrary to what he, know, he thinks is right, he proves himself a prophet. 
But then in a stroke of genius, Jesus is genius for doing it. Luke is genius for putting it at this story at this point in the narrative. He takes it up a level and says, she's forgiven with authority. No prophet's done that. Even the greatest, John the Baptist, even the next greatest, Elijah, no one's done that. This guy's doing more. And he doubles down on it. He doesn't just announce it, but he looks at her and confirms it. Who is this man? That's what's happening here. So I, I like to give you every week. That, that's, that's chapter 7. But I'd like to give you something that hit me to leave you with. Something, what hit me in this chapter? I know a lot hit me, but the thing I want to point out to you here is this brand new introduction in Luke's narrative, the relationship between forgiveness and love, okay? We've already had the relationship between faith exalted earlier in this book and in this chapter, right? That's how it started. The centurion's faith was huge. And here at the end, he affirms that again, your faith has saved you. So that's, that's connected to forgiveness. But he, with his riddle and then his statement, he's now making connection between forgiveness and love. There's a relation, a new category is introduced here in Luke. And so I want to draw you into what I noticed by asking you this question, just based on this story. And, and what you know. Here's the question. Does love lead to forgiveness? Or is the ability and motivation to love the result of being forgiven? Okay. Is, does love, there is a relationship between love and forgiveness. What is it? Is it love that leads to forgiveness? Or is it forgiveness? that leads us to love. Looking at this story, it's not that easy. This is what hit me. It, it, by, by his little riddle, it seems like he's saying the former, right? He's saying, no, yes, this person has been forgiven much, so she's loving much. That's what the riddle suggests. And that would jive with what John, the disciple John, says in his little book in 1 John four nineteen: We love because he loved first. But then his statement seems to allude to the second one, right? He he says to Simon, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much, right? Thanks for clearing this up, Jesus. Which one is it? He's He's like, she has loved much and for that, her many sins are forgiven. And that seems to jive with a little verse in First Peter, in the disciple Peter's little book, First Peter four eight, that love covers a multitude of sins. Good question, isn't it? Which one is it? And I am dying to tell you, but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna because. Listen, one of the lenses through which we approach Scripture is through the lens of wisdom. Those of you who are here for the Bible series, you remember this. We read it through the lens of story, through the lens of love, and through the lens of wisdom. And this wisdom comes by engaging Scripture, a complicated book, right? It's not a simple book. I just proved it to you. It's a complicated book by wrestling with it, by wrestling with God. I, by me, me telling you what I think, hopefully I've thought it out correctly, I'd be giving you knowledge. And knowledge is important, but wisdom comes through wrestling. And that comes from questions. And this question comes up from 
So I'm simultaneously asking you to wrestle with this and grow in wisdom. Go to God with this and learn how to use scripture to grow in wisdom because that's one of its design purposes. So I'm not gonna tell you. I'm not gonna tell you. But I will tell you this. And let me ask our elders and our, their spouses to go ahead and get up and make a move around the room. They're just, they're here. If you need to respond for some reason today, that's why we make this awkward move right here. And they stand up in front of everybody and they move to these spots. They're letting you know, hey, we love you. We're with you. So I will end with this. This story, whatever the answer to that question is, this story definitely affirms the call on your life. It affirms the call on our life. It affirms the call on our life as a church. It affirms who we say we are and what we prioritize. And that's to be a love first church and you to be a love first person. Simon missed it. And by missing this, he missed everything. The priority of his life was to love God and to love others. And that's not what he did. The sinful woman got it. Simon was right. There was a gap between him and her. But it wasn't what he thought. He thought he had a right, she had a wrong. And it was just the opposite. This story exalts that whoever you are, whatever you've done, you are forgiven because of the love of God. And you are his chosen vessel then to be an ambassador of that love in the world. Not by being right enough or religious enough or correct enough to not be considered a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This guy missed it. If we can help you this morning in any way, if you want to know about this love and you want to be baptized into that love, you just come to any of us. We want to walk you right through that. Maybe you just are in a tender spot today and you need a little dose of that love that comes from the king through his church. We'll give you that too. Come, let's stand and let's sing.